Let's open our Bibles this morning once again to Ezra chapter 9. We'll be looking today specifically at verse 15 of chapter 9, but to give us context, I will read from verse 10 to verse 15. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just." For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to your word this morning. Let your spirit speak to the deepest part of us, applying the word and applying your will in our lives. We pray that we would be brought closer to you, closer to your image in that process of sanctification that you have set before us, that work that shall last all of our time here on earth. We want to be like you. We want to be with you. And we long to hear from you today. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, we pray. Amen. We come this week to the final verse in Ezra's prayer. And in it we find the final plea of his heart toward God on behalf of this sinful remnant. Many will recall that the great sin of the Jews returning to the land of Israel from the captivity in Babylon was just like their ancestors they had embraced the idolaters of the land. They had become so close with them that they were compromising the purity of their loyalty to Yahweh, the one true God, to the point that they were even arranging marriages between their children and the idolaters. Some who were of more advanced age, there is evidence in the text, were also taking these women of the land to be their own wives. It's asserted by many scholars that this was the reason behind the teaching in Malachi 2 verses 10 through 16. That some were putting away their wives to marry the younger daughters of the pagans in the land. I'll say that I find Malachi's message a compelling message toward the returned exiles of Ezra's day. But Malachi may have preached this at many points after the return, perhaps as late as the end of Nehemiah. 
But you'll notice that the final part of Ezra's prayer really doesn't focus on the people or their sin. His focus is not on those things that have gone before. He instead focuses on God and His righteousness. And if you think about it a moment, there's no surer way to deal decisively with the sin in your life than to meditate on the righteousness of God Himself. In those moments where we set our minds to plumb the depths of His righteousness, pride and pretense fade. All of our excuses for sin pale. All of our thoughts of our own worthiness or our own goodness are put to shame. In the light of His holiness and His commandments, we see our utter bankruptcy of goodness. We know that there is nothing good within us that He has not placed there. All the time, though, Christians think that if we just concentrate on our sin, then we can control it because of our willpower. And some, to be sure, can make progress against one particular sin or another. But often, when we see what is really occurring, we find that we're simply substituting one sin for another. Choosing a sin that is not so open to keep us from committing one that is. To, to choose a sin that is perhaps in our eyes a bit less deadly to keep us from one that we think is more deadly. Like a person who has been abusing illegal drugs and simply changes their habits to abuse prescription drugs. Her state is not better. The sin has simply been moved to another target. And I fear we'll see much more of that locally in the future when marijuana is more plentiful and easy to get. But in the light of God's holiness, there is no sin that does not offend His righteousness. And in that light, we find we can offer no excuse that one current sin is better than another current sin. Both sins are deadly. And so let's take a look at the beginning of verse 15. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. Take a look at that last word, just. Most other translations, other than the English Standard Version, which I'm preaching out of, translate this word slightly differently. In your own version, if you're using a different version, you're probably reading, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. Now, I think I understand why the ESV translators made this choice, but I do like to imagine that there were some debates back in the translation room as they were saying, which word should we use? Because out of the 206 instances of this Hebrew word in the Old Testament, they only translated this word just three other times. The rest of the times they translated it righteous or some variant of that. Now please understand, I'm not saying that just is a bad translation. I'm saying that it captures one aspect of what is being talked about here. It may even be more accurate in the intent behind the use of the original word. 
Because this word carries with it the idea of being completely right, completely unaccusable, and entirely innocent. It carries all that wrapped up in it. We don't have a single English word that captures all of those things. And all of these ideas, righteousness, justice, and innocence, are often misunderstood or improperly defined in our world today. We read this morning, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Truth and faithfulness go before you. In our day, though, we find it hard to define righteousness. We look long and hard to find justice. And we have a complete misunderstanding of innocence. You see, the statement in Ezra could be taken as this, O Lord, the God of Israel, You are innocent. But as I mentioned in passing a few weeks ago, we don't have a good understanding of what innocence is. There are many who might point to a child and say that a child represents innocence. And that may be the closest analog we have here on earth among people. But innocence is not the same thing as ignorance or being naive. Innocence, that general kind of innocence ascribed here to God, does not mean that the innocent one is not aware of sin or evil, but they are untainted by it. They are untouched and and they are guiltless of any evil or sin. So when we look at a child, do we really see a person who is untouched by selfishness, greed, pride, or other sins that proceed from their own heart? Perhaps an infant... But it doesn't take long for that sin nature to make itself known from the heart even of a little one. But still, infancy and childhood are, for most of us, the closest we would come to calling someone innocent here on earth. Another time we might hear someone called innocent is in the context of a trial over a crime that they were accused of. When the verdict is returned and the defendant is declared innocent, on the charges, but no one, not the judge, the jurors, anyone in the public, not even the defendant himself would believe that that defendant is innocent of all things, only that he is innocent of this single accusation. So what does Ezra mean when he calls God innocent, when he calls God righteous, when he calls God just? He means that of all the errors that have occurred in this relationship between Israel and God, God has not committed a single error. Of all the promises that have been broken between them, God has broken none of them. Of all the wrongs that have been committed, God has been completely right all along. And if God chose to execute every single punishment for their sin, He would be perfectly just and perfectly fair in doing so. In writing his second letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul put it this way. If we died with Him, we'll also live with Him. 
If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. But then hear this, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And so with that term just or innocent or righteous defined, let's take a look at what Ezra is saying here in this 15th verse. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Do you get that? You are just because we are left a remnant. You are just because we are standing here before you today. Do you see the evidence that he uses for God's justice here? That the remnant is still here. He is saying that God is just because they remain a remnant. God hasn't obliterated them. As verse 14 said, he would be right in doing You recall that he says, Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? He says, God, you would be perfectly justified to wipe us out, but you haven't. And that proves your justice. Instead of destroying them, God is providing them a time, an opportunity to repent, to turn from their sin. Ezekiel, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 18, says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than that he should return from his ways and live? Then further down, he says, When a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions which he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. And then he summarizes in verse 32 of that same chapter. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. You see, we learn something about God's justice in Ezekiel. We learn something about God's justice in Ezra today. The first thing we learn is that God's justice is long-suffering. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There are many who have wrong, who wrongly quote this verse to prove some form of universal salvation by God. But if you look at the context of this verse, it is absolutely nothing of the sort. This verse culminates the entire chapter about the judgment of God. The judgment of the mockers and the revilers. Just like we read in First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians 1 this morning. How terrible that day of the Lord will be. And how God will repay them for their sin and their evil and their guilt. And so the promise God is not slow about is the punishment 
of the wicked. And in what reason does God give for withholding His judgment? It says He's patient toward you. He's patient toward His people. He wants you to repent. He wants you to leave your sin behind and put to death the deeds of the body. He is giving you time to change your heart. That was Ezra's message to the Jews here in verse 15. It is the message of all of Scripture. God is long-suffering. 2 Corinthians 6, 1-2 through says, We also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, today, now is the day of salvation. The second thing we learn about God's justice is that God's justice keeps His promises. God never breaks His promises. He never goes back on His Word. To Israel, He declared that they were His people and He is their God. And even in their rebellion and their sin, God always preserved a pure people in the midst of the crooked and rebellious generation. You recall when Elijah had destroyed the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel that the queen Jezebel declared that he would be put to death. And so that great man of God fled in fear. And when he had begun to pray to God, he complained that he was the only faithful one left in Israel. And God, in sending him back, gave him this assurance that there are 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He said, I have 7,000 people who have remained quietly faithful through it all. God always preserves for Himself a remnant. The very people around Ezra were proof of that. And God always keeps His promises. If you are one of God's people through Jesus Christ, you have an even greater assurance. John 10, 27 and 28 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 puts it this way, Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. You are established in Christ by God if you are in Christ. Your salvation, if you are in Christ, is guaranteed and sealed by the Holy Spirit. It is guaranteed by one who can never change. The third thing about God's justice is that God's justice is at all points good news for His people. 
The final cry of Ezra's prayer is this, Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. What is Ezra saying there? He is saying, God, we have only to trust in your mercy. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to be left here as a remnant. We can only plead your mercy. Mercy means that you are not given the justice that you deserve. It means that you deserve death for your sin, but you do not receive death for your sin. And so you may ask, and fairly, how can God be just if He lets things slide and simply dispenses mercy? Doesn't that make Him complicit in sin? Doesn't that make Him an enabler of unrighteousness? There are a lot of people today who try to claim the mercy of God this way. They say ridiculous things like, I don't believe a loving God would allow anyone to go to hell. Or, God loves me just the way I am. Now, i got to tell you, I love each of my children from the moment they were born. But it doesn't mean I wasn't happy when they got out of the diaper stage. It didn't mean I didn't want them to change. It didn't mean that I didn't want them to mature. I loved them. And I loved them enough to help them mature. But the modern, Christless, crossless theories that so many people are betting their lives on is worse than wrong. It is deadly. God doesn't simply dispense mercy willy-nilly. The Bible is quite clear on how God delivers His mercy and keeps His justice intact. You see, God's justice always contains a provision for for the redemption. It always contains that part that says, Repent, turn from your sin, come back to me. God has always made a way. From the very beginning, we look at Genesis chapter 3, and we don't often go past the curses that God proclaims. But in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3, we read this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Do you remember how they knew that there was something wrong? Do you remember how they knew that they had sinned because they realized they were naked. And so God, in covering them up, made the first sacrifice, clothing them, covering them with the skin of an animal that had to give His life to cover their sin. In the law sacrifices were allowed to cover sin until such a day as God would remake those individuals. Because we see that finally, 
2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In the former days, He covered sin, waiting for the day when Jesus Christ would die on the cross to remove sin, to take care of it completely and eternally. And so we see what God and God alone did. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, a righteous life, an innocent life. And God made Him sin on our behalf and crushed Him on the cross. Jesus endured the full, pure, unfiltered, eternal wrath of God on behalf of His people. And He paid in full for every sin that you would commit if you were His. And He did it so that we are able to become the righteousness of God in Him. Now please allow me to focus on that just a minute. Because every word in that phrase is important. That we might become. It's not that we might be covered anymore. It's not that we might be hidden anymore. It is that we might be remade. We might become. We might be reset. Or in the words of John 3, we might be born again. So that we might become the righteousness of God. And like we talked about before, that word righteousness carries with it the idea of innocence. And so he is saying we can become innocent before God. There are times when I have sat and meditated on what it, would, what it means to be innocent. To be truly free of that guilt. But we mustn't stop there. Because there are a couple of other words in that phrase. We might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Christ. The transaction was, that was made on the cross was not to make us innocent in ourselves, but to make us innocent in Christ. We are not self-sufficient after the saving work of Jesus Christ. To the contrary, we are joined together with Him and it is His innocence that we are clothed in. That finished work of Jesus Christ then pays for our sin and clothes us in His righteousness as we are remade in Him. That is how God's mercy is delivered. That is how He can remain just and be the justifier of those who are in Christ. I absolutely love Romans 3.26. It's a beautiful description of God's redemptive plan. So that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.
Do you need to cry out today for God's mercy? Are you drowning in sin that you can never control? Do you know in your heart that you deserve God's wrath for your sin, but you long to plead His mercy? Hear the promise of Jesus. In John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. God's justice is a terrible thing for those who are in rebellion, to those who are in sin, but to God's people, God's justice is always good news. Because our state in Christ is to stand innocent before Him and to remain forever. Let's pray. Our Father, so many times we concentrate on just one thing or another. But Lord, let us see the innocence you call us to. That innocence that you have. That is why you sent your Son to die on the cross. To deliver that innocence to us again. We who were ruined by the fall. Ruined by sin. Ruined by our choices and our rebellions. Our iniquities. You sent your Son. And call us to repent. And believe in Him to follow Him, to trust in Him and the sacrifice He made so that we can stand before You, so that we can be with You, so that we can look forward to His return. God, make us long for Your return. For your return means that this body of sin will be completely redeemed, will be completely remade into a body that shall dwell with you forever. We long for that day, for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we say together as your people, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.